gotta get back into oh, it. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, yeah. I wake up and it's just hard to get out of bed. My muscles hurt. You know, my back's mm-hmm. killing me. My wife telling me I gotta clean the house. Uh, that's that's when yeah. you know your life has went to the American dream. A girl telling you what to do. <laughs> well, my uh, my son woke me up early this morning for some attention, so that was that was fun. After I went to bed late last night, so yeah. Well. Everyone, we're back here again with another episode of the Ironman Podcast, episode 172, with uh, Mr. Vagabond Allen, uh, trader and founder of Vagabond Creative Entertainment. And so for anyone who's going to watch this, and when uh, Vagabond posts this in the group chat that we're in on Facebook or any other indie Facebook groups on Facebook, this is what the show would look like. Because people have asked me what it's going to look like. And I showed them, you know, the, obviously the podcast examples. So someone asked, what role would you fill? Just talking and being a human being? I guess. I don't know how else I got to explain that. Just being a person that can talk. I, is that too much to ask for? You know, we talk it's about improvisational, right? That's what it is. It's improvisational. We're making it up as we go along, which is true of everything in life, right? Yeah, I, I make sure I tailor the episodes to kind of like how we would have a conversation in real life. You know, maybe we're just talking at the gym or about to leave. We're just having a conversation or maybe we meet each other at the store. You know, I feel like having that real life effect on the podcast makes it more relatable to people. You know, not this like really weird fake relatability that people need now in their comic book movies or whatever. But, you know, as we make sure everyone knows, this is what the episodes look like. Just a person coming on, obviously promoting their book. That's the main point of the show. If you know, because people would say, wouldn't you get like lower viewers if the show because so the show gets a lot of viewers on the replay? What about the lower viewership that comes from having a newer person? I was like, I don't care, I don't really care about views, I don't care about views. And man, how many years? Man, I last time I cared about views was probably when I first started doing YouTube, but after that, I was like, you know what, I, at a certain point, I'll just gonna just make the content that I want to make. If views came in that were good for certain videos, that's great. If not, I'll just happy someone even just chose to view the video and watch it, you know. And this is the thing here. If you're new and no one knows who you are, well, your big chance of obviously coming on and speaking and talking is going to make you obviously think about things for the future differently. Because this is what I've noticed, man. When people come on, they have another idea that'll come on to themselves, right? So when you're actually able to talk about your thoughts and ideas to someone else instead of just putting them in your head, it makes you go, wait a minute, maybe that really wasn't a good idea. Maybe I need, need to rethink that. Or maybe my thoughts and concepts about this were somewhat different but well it's nice to meet you man and since you're new here tell the audience something about yourself you would like them to know right out the gate all right so my name is alan forbes vagabond alan has been my handle for gosh maybe a couple of decades now off and on uh i i had this well i mean i've i've been using it largely since i since i got online years ago um but before that, I, the idea kind of came from this this fact that I tended to move a lot when I was younger, uh, as a kid and as a mm-hmm. young adult, and and so I have this kind of wandering kind of spirit. And so the vagabond and vagabond became the name of our or the current name of what was you know different names over the years, different ideas over the years, and so now I am uh, I formed I founded Vagabond Creative Entertainment. And put out a couple of things uh, here and there. We're uh, partnered with a company called Big Bang Comics and mm-hmm. uh, did a couple of pieces, a couple of different projects for them. And then finally kind of pulled together this idea that's been gestating and developing and changing for the better part of 30 plus years to the point where it's now ready to kind of meet the world and, and be brought out and uh, 
debuted. So that's that's what I'm working on. So I live in uh, the Chicagoland area, uh, mm. and I have uh, my family, uh, three kids who keep me busy, and uh, three kids. They're kind of my. Oh. Yeah, about, yeah. about the protection plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're done. We're done. Um, nine, seven, and uh, four. And okay. uh, they, they, you know, I actually, the first project I ever published, I published because I wanted to, like, I'd done a lot of things over the years and I was always aspiring mm -hmm. to create and put my own stuff out. But I, uh, I got inspired by the uh, impending birth of my first son to, mm -hmm. uh, to finally do something. And so I put out my first children's book and, uh, mm. that was, um, that was an experience. Uh, I achieved two of my three goals so far. Uh, I got mm. it published. I sold one to a random stranger and I'm still <laughs> waiting to sell a thousand copies. So that's, uh, it's available on Amazon, but that's, that's a whole nother story. Um, and then I did some other stuff and life and stuff. And then, uh, recently realized that the, the world and the technology has gotten to the point where, People like myself who don't have uh, the wherewithal or the means to, you know, spend years trying to get a major publisher to publish me now have these resources to independently publish, whether it's through Indie Planet or other sites like that, or whether it's through Kickstarters and, and things like that. And so that's what I decided to do. And that's how we're here now. So I wanted to ask you, since you live in Chicago, because everyone always has these crazy things they say about Chicago. So everyone knows the good buddy Rogue here I've had for about 10 10 years also is in chicago obviously his experience would be different from yours why is it called the windy city is it really that cold there um <laughs> it can be uh no the primary re there's a rumor and I, i'm not i'm no expert but from what i've heard the windy part refers to our politicians um though there, there is some wind it's kind of like you know how you hear seattle rains all the time but it actually gets more rain in new york the problem with seattle is that it's overcast a lot of the time so it always feels like it's raining, even when it's not. Here in the Windy City, we get such, you know, the weather is such an extreme. It's like I always say, I used to joke for years, uh, Chicago's a great summer city, go south for the winter. And so we are, uh, we're actually heading towards winter now. And I hate winter and I've been stuck here for decades. <laughs> you don't know how many times I wished I could escape winter, but here I am. Uh, once you once you kind of find yourself established, sometimes it's hard to pull up roots. So I uh, I would say as far as windy goes, yeah, decently at times. It just depends on where you are. So kind of like anywhere. Okay. So how is like actually living out there? You think it's getting progressively worse with the crime? I mean, the news could always say some bullshit, but it's always better to talk to people that actually live there, you know, because you're always doing a day to day. So are things right. as bad as the media says they are regarding like crime and you say politics, right, right? Right, right, So, you know, there's this thing about when people talk about they live in Chicagoland. A lot of times that people have this idea that that's the same as living in Chicago. And so if you think about like, if somebody says they live in LA, but they actually live in like Mendocino or they live in like, you know, Palm Beach or they live in like, you know, Beverly Hills, those are very different experiences. Those are suburbs, right? And so they have very different experiences. The suburb that I live in is relatively far from those, from those hot pockets of crime because those are just specific areas of Chicago proper. Chicago is a right. fairly large city and has a sprawling suburban uh, area that, that actually bridges mm -hmm. or taps into two other states. So right. it goes as far north as Wisconsin border and then it hits parts of in Northwest Indiana. So they always talk about the tri-state area. They talk about Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana. Mm -hmm. And so we have this broad range of areas and we have some suburbs that can be pretty bad too. But 
when you've lived here long enough, you know where to go and where not to go. And so mm-hmm. there is some definite problem spots in the city right now, but there's still plenty of places you can go in the city and have an amazing time and and feel safe and enjoy what makes Chicago great as one mm-hmm. of the major cities. So you ever got lost I'm also, when you first got there? I'm also not a uh, I'm not a uh, I'm not a, a major city hater, so I'm not like, oh Chicago's better than everywhere else and everywhere else sucks, you know. But <laughs> I do I do I do celebrate, you know, what Chicago is. So sorry, you had a you you were saying sorry. Oh uh, do you I do you ever get like lost sometimes when you first got there? Because now you said you were bouncing mm. around a lot before. I would get right. lost so, in big cities like that. There's no way you couldn't. Well, Chicago has this kind of unique thing where at one point you most people have heard of the Chicago fire, right? Yeah. Over a hundred years ago, right? Right. Well, when that happened, a large parts of the city were leveled and the city planners were like, we're going to rebuild, but we're going to rebuild smart. So they created this thing called the grid system. And so most of the city and extending largely to the South suburbs, there's this grid that, that very structured that makes it very easy to like, just by looking at an address, you can kind of get a sense of where you are, East, West and North, South. Now, the grid starts to fall apart when you head west of the city and even more so when you head north and northwest of the city, but into those suburbs. But in the city proper and all the way down to the south suburbs, if you see a number, you're like, OK, I can find my way. If you see the name of a street, you're like, I can find my way. It's it's a little easier. It's a little easier. And of course, these days, technology has made it so that it's almost impossible to get lost as long as you got your phone, you know. So but uh, no, I haven't really. It's been a long time since I got lost. Um it was an old, old movie based in Chicago called Judgment Night. And a big part of the premise of it was them getting lost, right? Um, that's a lot harder than it used to be. So. Oh, and talking about comic books, actually, because you look like you've been a fan of comic books for a very long time. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? Okay. So what was the first comic book you ever had? Like, was it Marvel, DC? Was it Image? Ah. So... My childhood was kind of a, a, a funny one in terms of comic books. The very first comic books I remember seeing uh, were these two Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. One of them was an issue of the Hulk where he was battling the Constrictor, mm-hmm. which so this would have been like maybe late 70s, early 80s, right? This comic, and it wasn't like a brand new off the shelf. It was like somebody loaned me a comic or something. And it was uh, it was the Hulk versus the Constrictor. And I don't even know, like I know the Constrictor still exists, but I feel like I haven't seen him since, you know? <laughs> um, and then the other one was this weird issue of Thor where mm-hmm. somebody else had taken over as Thor who was a redhead. And he was fighting, like, in the issue, he was somehow fighting the Midgard Serpent. and Or maybe it was a fake Midgard Serpent. He was this pretend Thor, but he had Mjolnir. And he managed, he finally, like, threw it back to the regular Thor, the blonde Thor, as he sacrificed himself to try to stop this thing. So it was like a premature, wasn't supposed to happen kind of Ragnarok story. And mm-hmm. that's basically what I remember from that. And then later, some some uh, neighbor kids introduced me to the Marvel handbook um, because I was really starting to get into drawing. And so that was a great reference. I remember you used to have those. Yeah. You know, the Marvel handbooks. And Mm -hmm. so I remember going through several of those. I also remember uh, attempting to redraw a very early or like an eighties famous. It was a famous Wolverine comic or maybe it was an X-Men comic with Wolverine on the cover where he was slashing down the cover. Old man Logan. No, no, this was, this was all, this was a tr- classic brown and yellow costume. Oh, okay. Um, and it might've been, I don't know if it was Neil Adams who did the piece, but it was, it was an older piece. So those are some of my earliest memories of comic books. I didn't really start collecting on my own until I graduated high school and I started collecting a lot. I was collecting uh, a lot of Captain America from the Ron Lim era mm-hmm. and uh, all the way up through issue. I think it was 350. Um, this was when the uh, Red Skull had come back to life by cloning Captain America and assuming <laughs> his body. Uh, mm-hmm. This is also when they introduced the U.S. agent and things like that. Uh, so this was this was that era. And then I was uh, 
you know, for at first I was big about following artists. So when new artists, like I remember getting that X-Men number one by Jim Lee with the gatefold cover and no way. Like, oh yeah. Um, and uh, some of the others, you know, a lot of the guys that then went on to image and stuff. In fact, mm -hmm. my first comic book convention was 1990. I went to, uh, it was called at the time it was called the Chicago comic-con. Yeah. I'm a little older <laughs> uh, Chicago comic-con. And I was, uh, I had just graduated high school and I had met this guy who I will talk about in a moment because mm -hmm. he's, he's kind of, um, how would I describe him? He is a veteran of the industry and has been for many years, but he's really known for just a few things. He's done a lot of like indie work and things like mm -hmm. that, but I'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. He took me to this con and while I was there, I met Mark Bagley, but I got yelled at by Mark Bagley. I met Mark Bagley and Paul Mounts. These are the two that I met at the time. Paul Mounts is this colorist, and I was aspiring to learn digital coloring, you know, coloring comics and things like that. And uh, so I met him, and he was pretty cool. But Mark Bagley was drawing a picture of Spider-Man. But the way he had drawn it in such an extreme angle, I was still learning. He was drawing this calf, and it almost looked like he was putting a cuff on the calf, like it was Captain America's boot. So I asked him about it. And he's like, no, that's his calf. And he looked at me, he goes, do I owe you anything? I was like what he's like do i do i owe you commission or anything i was like no he's like well then what are you doing here and i was just like whoa okay so i was like whatever mark bagley um but the reason i went to that con was i met a guy named frank fosco now i don't know if you've ever heard of him uh frank has his biggest claim to fame was he did the black and white run of the teenage Mutant Ninja turtles at image he was the penciler on that and that was a few years ago. Uh, they recently complete, they had done 23 issues, I think it was, mm -hmm. before the series ended. And they just they were just shy of wrapping up a storyline. So they recently got a chance, he and the writer got a chance to uh, to finish that story. They did a reprint with some new covers and new stuff, materials. I forget where it was, I'd have to look it up. But he got a chance to finish that story. So when I met him, he had worked on a magazine called Megaton. Megaton was this black and white anthology series from the 80s. And mm -hmm. it was the place that gave the that launched the careers of Eric Larson, of Angel Medina, of uh, Rob Liefeld. Got some guy had some early work in that. Creator of Deadpool um, and X-Force, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, S. Clark Hawbaker, Butch Geis, a.k.a. Jackson Geis. Um, there was a few people who kind of got their start there or nearly got their start there. Like they were mm -hmm. uh, it was some of the earliest work. Um it was because of Frank that I got to meet Gary Carlson, who's pretty much one of the um, veterans of indie comics. He was the one who started Megaton. He later launched Big Bang under the Image imprint. Uh, well, he'd done an Image, he did it at Caliber, he did a couple others. And uh, and so that's kind of how I got my early exposure to the comic industry and how I started meeting people. And How then, old were you at the time? Well, when I met Frank, I was in high school. Frank was a little bit older. He's got maybe five to 10 years on me. And his brother, who was a youth pastor at the time, introduced us because I was aspiring to, to draw and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so Frank at that time had his big claim to fame was his Ethrian series at um, his Ethrian stories in the Megaton anthology. And the Megaton ran for eight issues. Uh, just Megaton comic. Megaton was the title. Megaton was the title character. And there were several other characters there. So Savage Dragon was first introduced there. So, so was Vanguard. And then Frank introduces Ethrian there. And there was... Um, I don't know if there was any others from there that really got that came out later. Youngblood was another one. Mm -hmm. So Live Life did Youngblood. That was his first um, kind of foray into that. And then that was during the black and white era of the 80s when there was all these black and white indie comics and stuff. And then it got to be too much and the industry kind of took a dive and Megaton folded. Years later, Gary brought back um, or launched Big Bang out of uh, 
his work with image and stuff because Eric and Gary got along really well. So Eric had gotten Gary, Gary was doing a lot of writing for Eric. Cause that's what yeah. Gary's primary thing is writing. And so then I, uh, I then got into, I met a guy who worked at electronic gaming monthly, which is the classic, the big video game magazine that was around for decades. And he was one of the original founding designers, like layout artists and stuff. And he's the one who introduced me to computers and being able to use computers for art. And that's when I got into Macintosh computers and I started using Apple products to learn to do art digitally. And eventually I got into 3D art and that's how I ended up where I am with my art today. So, okay. so I can do traditional hand drawn stuff, but I never got fast enough uh to really do like page layouts and things like that i could right. do you know pinups and stuff like that so i focused on the 3d stuff but i brought that that skill set of learning the comics um and then combined it with my graphic design uh background to to where i'm you know using that to create comics now so you were around long enough to have this narrative come out where it was the narrative that digital art was not considered real art so how did that narrative progress where people now see it as a viable way of being an artist? Because I'm pretty sure you've seen like the Shadversity tweets of the whole big AR, AI art thing. And the only argument that people did leave credence to were because people initially, whenever you've been around longer than me, something new comes out, people are very apprehensive about it. But when it starts to have a little bit of an effect as good, then it can be something like that. But the difference sure. with digital art versus what you we said hand-drawn art is I don't even really – I think people just generally overblew how bad old digital art was as they were perceiving it as a concept. I, When you look back at like all the documentaries about it and everything, I think people were just overreacting. I, I don't think anyone was trying to just be very malicious and be like, hey, I'm better than this hand-drawn guy. It's like, no, some people just aren't going to be all naturally good at doing that. It's just right. how it's going to work. So if you have a digital aspect to it, this could also help someone like you where maybe you're not good at that. Okay, well, there should be an alternative where if you aren't good at one thing, they should have an alternative. But the but the difference with digital and hand drawn art, you're still actually drawing the actual image itself. You're not putting in some prompts to have the image created. You're actually drawing your own creation. That's the big difference between AI art and digital art. I don't think people understand there's right. very fundamental differences between them. You know, you're actually sitting there for like hours on end, potentially coloring, drawing in a character, drawing panels. AR literally doesn't do that. You know, right. Right. Now I have done that kind of like created the art in the computer, you know, hand drawn right. art mm -hmm. using, especially nowadays, like iPads with an Apple pencil. Crazy, oh, yeah. amazing. With Cintiq mm -hmm. tablets, Wacom. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, so I've done stuff like that. But what I mostly do, is, and this also gets a little bit of a stigma, less mm -hmm. so now that it used to be, is I'm using programs that allow me to use uh, 3D pre-generated content that I then mm. customize to make it my own. And then mm. I, so what I'm doing, I like to describe it as more like I'm making a TV show. I'm not so much making a comic. And the reason is because I'm taking, I'm taking an application that's called Poser. And there's another similar one that people might've heard of called Daz Studio. These are, these started out as a hobbyist applications and they've grown to be pretty robust, but they're still considered um, not, as robust or commercial as something like Maya or Blender or things like that. They're still pretty powerful and they do kind of cooperate with those. A lot of times when people get deeply into them, they start to learn these other applications so they can enhance what they do. But what Poser does, and it started out, if you're familiar with the classic idea of the artist mannequin, those wooden kind of figurines that people would use to pose things, when they first started this, when this thing launched year, decades ago, decade and a half ago maybe, it was basically a virtual artist mannequin. It was a human figure inside of an empty space that you could pose and light and use that as reference to draw art. It eventually grew into an application where you could create art in the application. 
And so what you do is you start with a basic human figure. Now, these generic ones, you take that figure and you decide what how that figure is going to look. So it's like casting the show. All right. You create your cast. Then you costume those characters. So you create their outfits, their looks, you know, whether you're recreating more of a, a classic spandex look or whether you're creating something that looks more like the MCU, you're creating these costumes. Right. Then you have to scout locations. You have to decide where these scenes are going to take place. You have to write the script. Right. So you write the script and you're like, okay, just like you would write for a regular comic, you, it's right. all the same. You write the script and then you kind of scout locations. You basically try to find sets, pieces that are virtual 3D modeled set pieces that you can put these characters in. Then you like them. Then you, um, uh, what else? You, you, you get all that together. Then you have to uh, render the images. And to do that, I actually use a technique that's very similar to storyboarding. Uh, where I'm using animation palettes. So it's kind of like if I were animating a scene where I was doing frame by frame, just moving my hand, right? But instead, what I'm doing is that each frame is the next panel. So in frame one, the character is standing. The next frame, he's sitting at a different angle. The next frame. So I'm using that. And that actually saves me time because I'm building one master file that has all these key moments for a scene. Now, occasionally when you're writing a script, sometimes your scene is two panels, right? So I might have a right. file that's just those two panels, or I might have a file that's 30 panels, and that covers like four pages of my comic. So then once it's all set up, I render it. Then for my distinct style, I do some post work in Photoshop to give it a, its own kind of stylistic look. Mm -hmm. Then I take all that art into Illustrator, which is where I do all my layouts. So I do all the different pages laid out in Illustrator, panel by panel, all the different sizes in a traditional comic, and I do my lettering in Illustrator as well. And so that's done more traditional. Most letterers these days are doing uh, digital lettering. And the thing is, it's like it's the same thing with like lettering is the same as like every other area of it. When computers came along, people were like, "Oh man, you're losing the art of doing it traditionally." Like if you if you look at some old comics and you see like like words where letters are kind of like almost to the edges of the word yeah. balloon or the word mm -hmm. balloons are kind of distorted. These days you can They're get like really so small on those older comics. Like the word bubbles right. are like super small and the text is really small and the images are like disproportionate, but you can see what's right. going and on. You can, you can tell it was hand drawn. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so now you can do so much with digital. So where it's like the, um, the art is like, you know, much cleaner and everything. You can make it like um, symmetrically like right. angled where it looks a lot more cleaner. You can tweak your letters so that your words kind of fill the balloon properly. So you don't have mm. like these weird gaps and things like that. <laughs> now, one distinct advantage of being the everything, <laughs> I write it, I well, you're you know, everything? create the you're, art. You're a letterer, writer, colorist, any artist, and right. the inker, so and the penciler. I'm writing, I'm writing the art, um, which covers the penciling, inking, and coloring aspects of right. it. Right. I'm writing the art and then I'm doing the letters and mm -hmm. doing the layouts and I'm writing the scripts. And what's really nice that helps me with that as my cat makes an appearance in the background. I actually have three cats now. We you just picked up the cats. third one today and we're introducing them. <laughs> so that's Lord. fun. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. That's my wife, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so we have, <laughs> when you're, when you're writing and doing the arts and doing the lettering, What's really nice is that I can edit on the fly. So like I've seen a lot of comics where when it's, when it's different people, if somebody's written something, as you're the letterer, you have to make it fit no matter what. You can't change anything. But when I get to a, a panel where I'm like, all right, this is how I worded it. But maybe if I use this word or this phrase differently, I can make it look better. Right. So there's an art even to how the lettering is laid out. So there's there's definitely an art all of it. And that's where it comes down to. When new technology and the and and things change and these new things come up, you can still tell 
when someone's being artistic or not, when someone has the eye or not. All right. And this is something I learned from taking our history classes was this is not new. This idea of new technology or new ways of doing things come along and people like want to reject it. There is this really fascinating thing about Egyptian hieroglyphs. The reason Egyptian art looks the way it does for thousands of years is because they believed that it would look the same in the afterlife. And if they changed it, people would get to the afterlife and be confused. They wouldn't change it. And then eventually that changed. And eventually we got to the point where there's all these amazing artists that were doing new things. And it's like the Greeks and the Romans developed um, many of the ideas that we have and we understand about perspective and about seeing the real world. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward to the Renaissance and you've got artists developing new techniques and new ways of painting and new ways of looking at lighting. One of my favorite artists from the Renaissance era is this guy named Caravaggio. And he's basically like the Renaissance Alex Ross, because in a lot of ways, what Alex Ross does and why he succeeds is because he understands what Caravaggio understood about the mm -hmm. importance of lighting. And so, you know, every time someone thinks something new comes, I mean, people were mad at Alex Ross for a while. Like people are mad at, at, at Jack Kirby. Like people are mad at different people. Even the, mad at the people that we look at any now. given moment. Yeah. <laughs> right. So there's yeah. always going to be somebody. There's always going to be detractors. Now with that in mind, mm -hmm. People talk about the techno how technology has democratized creativity, how it's democratized um, mm -hmm. producing content, content creation. Think about right. yourself, right? Mm -hmm. There was a time when the only way you could get your content out is if you got a radio station to put you on the air, right? Or mm -hmm. a television station to put you in a show. Now, you know, we've got this ability to do all these things. But the challenge with AI Many artists will learn by reading other, by, by looking at other people's work. There's this idea, one, one technique that a lot of artists use where when they're trying to crack, you know, crack a technique, they will go to a museum and they will look at one of the greats and they'll try to recreate the painting. Mm -hmm. Now it takes a long time. It's not instant, you know, but it's learning from watching somebody else, right? What they did with AI is they took the computer and did that. And the thing is, is if you think about it, AI could be an amazing tool in the hands of an artist, right. but it's not artists who are using it. It's people who don't like, I use the 3d stuff because I'm not as good an illustrator as some, I wasn't able to produce at the speed with my hand drawn that I could produce with these 3d mm -hmm. rendered things. And even that I still had to learn techniques. I still had to learn ways of doing that that makes sense. And then I had to find my own look because if I did what I had done for a couple of the issues I've done already, if I continued to do it that way, I would look like everyone else who had done it that way. I had to continue to develop my approach until I got to a place where it was unique and mine. And the challenge with AI is that when people prompt AI, it's not unique in theirs. It's AIs, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if they prompted AI and then took that and enhanced it and 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 use that as a foundation it'd be no different than tracing a photograph and then creating art over that which a lot of artists do alex ross uses photographs tim bradstreet uses photographs they go out they don't just draw it and there are some traditional artists who frown on that because they're like oh man you're not just drawing it out of your head and i remember one of the artists that kind of did that who gave me that kind of speech like oh he's not just trying his head and then i watched him pull a jeep out of a magazine and draw the jeep it's like like trace the jeep because he couldn't draw a jeep out of his head like nobody can draw everything out of their head 
some of the really good artists can get pretty close and then they'll do what's what's good enough to get the scene out and stuff like yeah. that but then you look at it and you go okay that person looks amazing that cat in the background looks stupid you know like <laughs> yeah you know, they can't do it all right <laughs> and so we all use references and that's where i like if i had if i needed to take something because the technology was coming up short and i wanted to create an amazing reference that i could build on top of right I mean, we think about like just a year or so ago and, and the AI is getting better all the time. So we're not seeing as many of those really bad, ridiculous hands as we as we were, but we're still seeing some bad hands. And then a real artist could go in and fix that. But they're not because the people who are using it aren't using it for that. And those people will argue that they're democratizing art with their AI because they can't afford. It. And we all understand, like not all of us can afford to pay for everything, right? We can't, we can't, right. we don't have the money the big studios have and the big companies have and things like sure. that. And we know that. And there's always been a challenge for artists and writers and creatives in general to get properly paid for their work, right? To be, to the value to be yeah. there. It's like still that. going on now where right. Marvel, I mean, they've, look at just the last five, six years. Marvel's been in some pretty, huge legal scandals of the, the characters and paying people for their work. The guy that mm -hmm. wrote the initial, the guy that created the winter soldier or Bucky when he's mm -hmm. Captain America for the movie, right. they said they invited him to the movie premiere, but they didn't pay him for like his contribution to the story that they used. Now some right. would say, but back in the day you would, no one knew that that would happen. That's true. But I, I personally feel if you're using someone's story as an influence for your movie, Throw him, some, throw him some money, you know? You don't right. have to give him credit on the screen. Throw him some money. But Marvel's right. like, the best I can do is I can invite you to the movie premiere. What the hell? <laughs> you know? Like, throw him some And that was kind of Marvel. the challenge with those. Like, we've seen, we know that there were things that were not done. They weren't, like, people were not done right by the studios and stuff at different times. There was the whole studio system where freelancers were, like, not really owning what they were doing and that's what image tried to change but they're like we want creator own stuff and that had its it's it's you know um pluses and minuses it had its upsides and downsides uh but we've seen that over the years the thing is is a lot of times i remember this with being a graphic designer you know when i hated trying to freelance as a graphic designer let somebody else figure out how to chart get chart you know get paid for it and get in charge for it because the there's nothing worse brutal, than trying man. to explain to somebody what's that <laughs> The free market is brutal, man. You oh, it's brutal because yourself. Yeah, it's crazy out there. <laughs> because people always go, well, I don't know what, I don't know how to value what you're doing. I can, if I call an electrician or a plumber and they fix it, they tell me like, it's going to take this many hours, going to do this, this is the, these are the parts. If I go to the repair shop. I know how to value that. I don't know how to value penciling. A, you know, I don't know how to value these things. It was always the challenge, you know? And then it, there was always the people who'd ask for discounts. Now, my background includes uh, a long period as a um, in the in the in the uh, in the church world, all right. And I'm not as in that as I once was, um, but I went through a number of years where it was like when you want to freelance as a creative, you know, a lot of times people would come to you and be like, "Hey, can I get a discount because I'm you know a member of your church or whatever?" And it's like, "Can you go to the uh, post office and ask them for a discount because of that? Can you get a discount as a church on your?" Um, on your uh sorry your utility bills <laughs> yeah like uh frank frankenson it's a place we go to out here for a big giant nurse everyone knows what it is and i was talking to i, I know a good amount of the owners there and then 
I was like, hey, how do you guys do it, stupid people? They, this one guy I know told me this guy tried to basically buy buy a Yu-Gi-Oh card that was like 20 some bucks, and he tried to be like, hey, man, can you do it for 10? And the guy, literally, I, wa- I watched this in real time. So I watched this as the transaction was happening. And the owner that I know him, he was like, do you go up to the supermarket when you're buying a candy bar and say, can you get half off of this? Like, what? I don't know why people exactly. do it for like, you go to a comic book shop, you're paying like $6 for a title, right? You don't go up to right. that shop and be like, hey, can I get this for a dollar? Like, what the? F- right. No one does that for established businesses. But if it's just some random stranger, no one gives you that same level of respect. I, I noticed that. It's like, that's so fucked. You know, certain Where, industries, mm-hmm. they still think that there should be a barter system. And it's yeah. like, no, there's not. If it's not universal, stop trying to get a discount. You know, it's just people come in. I work at a retail location. People come in all the time asking about that kind of stuff. And it's just like, no, I don't set the prices. I'm sorry. There are no discounts. You know, it's just it cracks me up. But I, I think the AI thing, I think I'm saying it kind of sitting outside of it looking in. Uh, I'm not I'm not using AI specifically for what I'm doing. I, I could, there are some really cool techniques I've seen where people are creating renders with some of these applications and enhancing them with AI uh, filters and things like that. And they're looking really good and it's, it's turning out really nice, but they put some work into it, right? It wasn't just put in a prompt and here you go. But I will say at the same time, I have consulted AI for writing purposes. Uh, when I look at like, when I was trying to create some of the marketing for my uh, for my, my project, I ran some of the things that I wrote through the AI for analysis, uh, using mm-hmm. chat GBT 3.5. I'm not paying for the, for the 4.0. I know it's supposed to be better and everything. I'm getting enough out of the 3.5. <laughs> I wouldn't trust chat GPT to give me facts. If I was doing something like I heard a, a story about somebody who like was trying to argue a case chat GPT gave him 26, uh, citations and 14 of them were made up. Like, you know, I wouldn't trust the AI to be honest because the AI doesn't know why it needs to be honest. So Mm -hmm. I expect AI to lie to me. But at the same time, I've gotten some value. AI has helped me fix my WordPress website a couple of times, uh, troubleshoot Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, And like I said, I've used it to get analysis on some of my writing to see if my themes are coming through, to see if it communicates what I want to communicate. Uh, in addition to my comic projects, like I said, I did a children's book and I've got others planned. I've also written three novels that I've yet to publish. Um, so, I mean, AI has been kind of handy for that, but there's still limits to what I would use it for. As far mm-hmm. as like where it's going and where it's going to end up, it's hard to say. But for now, I'm going to keep mm-hmm. moving forward, uh, doing things, you know, me doing the things, you know, yes. and uh, and just kind of like, you know, hope that I get enough people to to be interested in it to uh be able to keep doing it so so i'll ask you do you think due to the backlash the ai has gotten from a mass amount of people even in your space do you think it ever will be that thing that is going to be something where you know it's going to be more of a standard operational tool to have i think you know they always say the the old saying uh the the genie's out of the bottle right i think that we can't (laughs) We can't, uh, we can't necessarily, we can't not have AI, like suddenly not have it. Like we can't make it go away. Uh, we can learn to control it, uh, which, you know, humanity is not very good at that. So it's hard to say what we're going to do this time around that's different from the last time. <laughs> um, I mean, 
Now, I don't want to get necessarily political per se, but I will say that, uh, that, you know, we're dealing with a lot of problems right now because people couldn't be trusted to, you know, do the hard things to resolve them. Yeah. You know? Well, even so. if outside of politically, the comic industry, you, we couldn't trust them because there's this meme of like, I don't know if you've ever been a fan of wrestling, I, but I know what the pile driver is. Someone put a pile, someone did a, someone did a video, someone did a pile driver and they put the guy's Marvel and DC right in the person's face and crashing down. <laughs> the comic industry people don't know is... It, it's rough out there. Even places, it I is. mean, places literally in Los Angeles, I'm like two hours away from there, one of the oldest comic book shops in LA just closed down. I one think in I Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, one in Manhattan, which just closed down as well. Their store is closing down, you know, because the big two are not providing quality stories. And people, people right. don't understand. I buy, I don't know, let's just use, let's use this can of energy drink. I bought this for like $3. Or two dollars can't. Oh, you know, can't sell one. Let's say three dollars, right. right? I bought this guys for three dollars, right? Yes, it's three dollars, but the quality's there. I will keep buying these, which I do. Now, if the quality dipped and it's three dollars, I don't see a justification of paying this, right? right. So I know complex right. have always been a certain amount of money, but but the industry people running it have to understand. You might be charging like six dollars, but if you're not getting giving me like a good story each week for like maybe two minutes of entertainment. I'm not going to value that story the same. It doesn't matter what it, what that story costs. It could be five dollars. Right. It could be nine ninety nine. I, I and people got to understand it's it's different now because everyone keeps telling me these things. And I'm like, no, no, they've changed things. So like a big thing that people push back on how many pages the books are. They've upped the pages. Certain books are not twenty four pages anymore. They're twenty eight. They're thirty two. Right. They're sixty four in some pages. But people got to understand it doesn't matter how much the page count is if the price is what it was and the story is not good. So they've upped the right. page count. The price is the same, but the story is not good. You know, right. That, that goes back to bad. Mm-hmm. that goes back to something I said to my best friend. So he and I have been mm-hmm. fans of comics for a long time. We met because we were, we were fans of comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been each other's best man. We know each other a long time. Mm-hmm. He's always been kind of concerned about originality, right? We're always concerned right. about originality, and it gets right. harder and harder to be original anymore, right? Really One hard, of the things yeah. I told him, <laughs> I said, it's not as important to be original as it is to be compelling. It's not as important mm. to to tell a story that no one's ever heard before as to tell a good story. Because if you tell a good story and there's enough, you know, elements to it that, you know, it may not be completely original. What I'm doing with my main character in my first story, he's a bit of a pastiche. He kind of, I you know, people could look at him and go, oh, well, he's just this or he's just that. And I'm like, no, not exactly, but kind of, yeah. I'll admit, you know, there are always going to be influences in right. But if I tell a good story, People will care less about things like originality, uniqueness, one of a kindness, right? Yeah. So, and that's mm-hmm. what's happening right now, I think, with a lot of the comic book industries, because the biggest challenge they've had is that, and I remember um, Eric Larson talked about this with the Savage Dragon. I mean, he's been on mm-hmm. the Savage Dragon since day one. That's his baby. Won't let anyone will touch it for the most part. Um, he writes character-driven stories. And... The story is about the character. And so he tells that story. The thing about a lot of comics is when you look at uh, something like Superman, right? Right. It's like the Matrix. You've seen the Matrix? Yes. The first one. The original I have. Matrix. Right. The first one. I, have. I think I have. Yeah, I can't the only... remember, but I'm pretty sure I have. Yeah. 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 That's the only one that matters because <laughs> that true. told a complete story. Mm-hmm. It didn't need any more. The problem is, is that some people are not content to just tell one good story. 
They want to keep telling stories of the characters. Now, some characters you're not telling when you when you get a story that's like this should be sequelized. There needs to be more. That's because they didn't tell the whole story. But you look at something like uh, you know the Neo story, the Matrix story. You're talking about a uh, a savior complex. You're talking about a hero complex, right? You're talking about the hero's journey. And once you achieve that, my in my mind, everything after that is just the news. It's just headlines. It's not mm -hmm. more story because he made it. He became the one. It's like the Highlander series, all those different movies and everything. The first one, there never should have been any sequels. He became the one. There can be only one and he was it. There's nothing else to tell. And so the problem is, is a lot of times is you get these stories where they just keep having to rehash, reinvent, restart. The whole reason, the whole logic behind the two sequels, the original sequels, is that they basically had to say, you know, the first one, it's like, oh, Neo's the one. And then the second one's like, oh, wait a minute. He's not the one. They had to undo what they did to make it work. And mm -hmm. that's the thing about these industry, these these characters. You know, DC did at least some something intelligent where they started kind of doing some generational stuff. They let mm -hmm. some of the characters age out and introduce new versions. Other ones, they didn't. So they've had to reboot Superman like 17 times because they mm -hmm. can't say Superman's the Superman from 1938, you know? Right. And yet somehow he consistency. Is. Consistency right. is what the major two have always struggled with because people that are just getting into it now. Because like what – so I'll go back to an earlier point you made and I'll talk about the next one you made. The first one you made was that as long as you're telling a good story, it doesn't really matter if your main character has similar traits to another character, which is very true. For someone like anime, right? A lot of people compare like Naruto to like Goku initially when they first started. But Naruto's story is very good. So people went, you know, he's kind of similar, but it doesn't matter. You know, people, right. I think, let those things go the more the story gets better, right? Right. Then what you said about Superman and the other characters from like the big two, the, the, all, the other issue is they're, they've put people in comic book positions with these characters where they don't understand the characters i think you yeah. you can still keep them the way they are if you hire people that know who they are they're hiring yeah. people that that want to do this like not edgy they want to do something where it's completely different kind of like the idea of casting michael clark duncan as as kingpin i love michael clark duncan Right. Look like Kingpin, but that, but that, but that's what they do, though. That their thing is like, hey, I want to just do something completely di different. And then when the right. fans don't like it and they reject it, they're like, how come you guys don't like it? It's like that's not what they wanted, though. Telling their right. different stories doesn't mean overhauling the whole product, though. I don't understand why they keep doing that. You don't have to overhaul the whole idea of Superman. Why not just give us what Superman was already based around and what he's good for? You know, right? Well, not everybody truly will understand that without spending some time with the character. True. But the other yeah. thing too is like. People change. People go through different experiences. People will mm -hmm. surprise themselves, much less everyone else. Mm -hmm. So there's always room for some degree of that. But at the same time, it's hard when you're talking about characters. It's hard to make characters that are comic book characters, for example, who are by nature two-dimensional, three-dimensional, right? It's hard to create that effect. And the other challenge, of course, is like to your point earlier about 24 pages, right? It's hard to do that in 24 pages. It's hard to tell a consistent story. One of the things that's interesting, we see what happened with television. We think about television series, right? It used to be that you had to put together a 22 episode, 24 episode season, no matter what. So you would see these stories that like, you would see these arcs, you would see this episode season, right? And the first few episodes would lay out the season. Then you'd have a bunch of episodes that were just dumb filler. And then you'd finish off the season, right? And we saw that all the time. 
So a lot of people had a problem with that. You also had to fit in that hour time slot with 15 minutes of commercials. So you had 40, 45 minute episodes and that was it. And those are hard cutoffs. And I watch episodes and I watch some older shows and I'm like, wow, that they missed that or they forgot that or this never got addressed or this got cut off kind of abruptly or they went to commercial here, clearly, you know. You saw that. Nowadays, you've got shows that are being written around the story and there's sometimes like, I'll go to, so I get an hour lunch, right? And a lot of times I watch a lot of my television on my lunch break. Mm-hmm. It's really tricky when I pick up, start a new one of these new modern series, and it's like, okay, this episode's forty-five minutes, great. This episode is fifty-four minutes, ooh, kind of tight. This yeah. episode is an hour and five minutes, great. Now I got to finish it on my break. Like, it's, it's like there's, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? There's, there's upsides and downsides to any way of doing it. Also, right? to tackle on your point, so, when you already said they were writing the whole twenty-two episode seasons, that's what I grew up with. Twenty-two episode, twenty-three, right. twenty-fifth are stretching it to try to really get the ratings there. But now right. you have these limited – well, now most of them probably will be considered limited series. Most are like eight to ten episodes like you mentioned. Even if that is the case with shorter episode seasons, they're still not even able to tell a story even in shorter episodes. So it's not the episode length. It's never right. been that. They just These are just hacks. They just can't tell good stories, whether it's longer or whether it's shorter. <laughs> well, these this new season model that we're seeing is largely inspired by the BBC. BBC uh, in England, they were doing this kind of stuff for a long time. Uh, There's a couple of limited series, and they called them series. They didn't even call them seasons because they didn't commit. They're like, we're going to do this series, and maybe we'll do a, a second series. Maybe we'll do a third series. I remember this one called Life on Mars. That was these two two seasons, two sets of eight episodes. Amazing, total amazing story. That was it. That was the whole thing. Um, we're not used to that. And part of the challenge is, is like when we were used to like, when you think about serial television or episodic television, like I just watched The Pretender. I had never gotten to see the whole thing back when it was new in the 90s. So I decided to sit through and watch it. It's a great series, but it has its flaws. And it was four seasons long. And nowadays you look at something new, like I'm a big fan of, of a lot of different things. So I'm watching, like I'm a big fan of Star Trek. And so I've been watching a lot of the new stuff. But like you do an eight episode season and then you don't come back for a year. It used to be you do 22 episodes and then you'd be gone for three months, four months at the most, and you'd be back. These large breaks and shorter seasons make it harder to get really excited about something and then have to wait right. on it. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's not the same level of engagement. You know, remember, like you'd have your long season over, <laughs> summer would pass, then in the fall, they would start up again. And you'd have this like anticipation because you'd know you'd be getting a long season for how long you've waited for your show. And now, like you said before, the TV structure is so changed now. Like that's what I was growing up with, where you have your fall shows, they take their mm-hmm. little break after summer break, you get your summer shows, they take their breaks in the next year. And though it was, you could say a little bit, because I, I, people call it outdated now, I wouldn't say it was outdated. It generally, that's why TV break ratings were at their peak during that time period, because it nat- the, the longer you waited, your enthusiasm built more and more. That's why you saw right. record-breaking rating numbers back then. You don't have record-breaking rating numbers now because, first of all, the seasons are shorter. They're not as good written. And it's also something where they're giving it to you basically a year later. You're going to have already forgotten about it by then. Yeah. Like Picard Season yeah. 3. Who really talks about Picard <laughs> Season 3 anymore? Outside of when it was coming out new. Right. You know? Right. Well, it's done. It's done. And mm-hmm. and it's just – it's a, it's a weird – it's a weird thing, but we're getting used to this change, right? And going all the way back to this idea of like the changing technologies for art and things like that, the AI stuff. The big thing that I didn't know when I first heard about AI that a lot of people talked about is how the AI was trained. 
that's the one of the probably the biggest controversies. Like if this if this was the computer figured this stuff out, that's great. But they trained these computers to figure this stuff out. And they trained it based on stuff that they didn't pay for. They didn't have permission for. It's the same thing with the SAG after strike and everything where they're like, we want to use your likeness and never pay for it again. People got to live. People have an expectation. People used to get paid for 22 episodes of writing. Now they're getting paid for 10 for the same rates. And that's the problem. That's the challenge. Because ultimately what you got is a much bigger thing without getting political on it, where you've got, you know, an economic system that's flawed, right? So that comes back to where I'm at now, where when I think about doing comics finally after all this time, I have set my my bar, my expectations are so much lower than they were when I was younger and aspiring to do this stuff. Now it's like, all right, if I can make enough to justify the hobby, <laughs> That is my comics. That's great. I'm not looking for a career. I'm getting paid good where I'm at now. So, <laughs> but there are people who are succeeding in their niches. It's no different than influencers and people who, who do stuff on YouTube or TikTok or things like that, or the podcast industry, right? People are building lives around these things. And you know, it gets to that point where some achieve this level of success, but not everyone's going to. I set up a Patreon page uh, about six months ago, but I had no idea what I was doing with it. I can have a Patreon page, but it's so past Patreon's prime at this point, right? Yeah, you know, there's, there's other, a lot of yeah, this... there's another thing called Subscribe Star now that more people have gravitated to, you know? Right. And it's just like, you know, Kickstarter is still the king of, of kickstarting, but there are yeah. others <laughs> that are kind of starting to come up and about, you know? Um, so there's always a timing thing with anything you know you think about like even just the industry we're here talking about comics right there was a golden age and then there was a silver age and then there was an iron age and now there's the modern age and uh, our platinum age and different people you know consolidation happens in so many industries i remember a guy years ago talking about how he used to have a uh, a um, a video distribution business back when there were like 19 distributors eventually it got down to five you know so consolidation happens um we see it in so many industries. So the comic book industry had this consolidation and it got to the point where there was basically the big four. You know, you had Dark Horse, you had Image, you had, and then the big two, Marvel and yeah. DC, right? Image isn't even a big deal. The image is more on Dark Horse's level now. Yeah, uh, that's why I even told like that. people coming on here is, I know people have mentioned like, oh, I would love to be an indie writer for Dark Horse and Image. And it's like, dude, have all of people actually seen their social media accounts? Those are jokes. Like they get about as good a presence as I do when I have like, banger tweets that's terrible you're actually better off just doing it on your own yeah you have them being yeah. your publisher to make your book but right. being under them and working for them is no different they don't they can't even generate excitement for their books like the only thing that image really generates now for um excitement is what mark miller does right he has big game going on right now i bought big game mission number one can't wait to read it his trade paperback comes out in december but i was like i i ain't waiting for that i need my issues right I read it right now but as much as you are understand, these other major indies like Boom and Valiant and Dark Horse and Image, they don't even generate interest for their stuff. So, like, you're asking, so why have corporate overlords over you when you could literally just do it on your own? And if you are good and talented, whatever fan base you'll have will support it. You know, right. right? And so a lot of it's just setting the proper expectations and knowing what you're really trying to achieve and knowing how much work it'll take relative to what you're trying to achieve you know uh -huh. um it, it, when i think about like some of the artists and writers that i used to follow like i haven't now the thing is is i haven't bought a comic in a long time uh, the, last I went these, the last comic the last comics i remember buying 
-hmm. were other than an occasional one-off um when i stopped in the comic shop to pick up some backing boards to uh to put my comics in um like the ones that i made mm -hmm. the uh the last thing that i bought with any regularity was i bought see the season eight comics for the buffy um when they did the season eight buffy the vampire slayer follow-up to this to the tv show right oh uh, okay. i bought that because i was interested to see where that story took the characters and stuff like that i i got into the part of it is when you have a limited amount of free time you tend to kind of pick and choose and once marvel started doing decent movies and tv shows nah, i know they weren't all good i was really disappointed with the inhumans everybody was i get it <laughs> i liked agents of shield i don't care um mm -hmm. when you think about all those different things at some point that had to be enough that had to be enough of my consumption of that material so i have bought now i have read okay i take that back i've bought the complete digital series anthology series from big bang comics because I'm involved with it, right? I've also started taking to investing in some digital comics from Kickstarter because they say that you got to have skin in the game and they say that it's a good idea to back some projects so that you look more like you're involved in the community. So I have bought a few of those, but I haven't really followed the big gang, the, the big companies. because I'm like, well, if they're going to put TV shows and movies in front of me, I don't need to read the comics. I don't have time. I don't have the time or the money, you know? Um, and it's challenging. And so I have, I don't have much sense of where the industry is right now. I keep seeing I keep seeing people post things. Uh, some of the people I know who do like you know commentary on stuff, they'll talk about like, oh, here's the here's the latest dark thing happening at DC that was supposed to be brighter, brighter future, you know, like, and it's so like it's true. Like they don't know everything's got to be edgy right now. It's like they don't know who heading towards a new Iron more, Edge, right? They, they don't. They don't know. They don't. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to target people. And so part of it is, is that you can't, you have to recognize you can't be everything to everybody, right? I got this really amazing piece of advice many years ago. Mm -hmm. So I got, um, I grew up in the church. Well, okay. So I came to the church when I was in my early teens. Um, I got into an evangelical church for a number of years. And at the time I started learning about the, like, I wanted to do Christian comics for a while. Okay. It was that mm -hmm. kind of idea. And part of it was, is that I didn't see anybody doing anything good in that, nothing compelling in that space. Because there's this real challenge when you, when you live, when you're in a religion that has such a strong sense of the need to be truthful, to make stuff up. They have a hard time with fiction. It's hard sometimes to, 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 to wrap your head around justifying that and everything. But I remember I was going to do these comics. I was I had this big aspiration, and I'm like, I want to make sure that nobody's going to look at my comics and go, "Oh, these aren't very, these aren't Christian enough." So I went to talk to this one pastor, and I don't even know if actually he wasn't a pastor. He was one of the administrators at this church. It was a large church, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm trying to see, like, I'd like to get some advice. You know, I want to make sure this stuff is doctrinally sound." All right, and he looked at me. He goes, "If you can sell your comics." to about 30, 35% of your intended market, your success. doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. And I was like, that is a very profoundly business advice way of looking at something that wasn't exactly the answer I wanted, but it was the answer I needed. Because ultimately what it reminded me is that you can't please all the people all the time, right? So you have to find your niche and find enough people to like it enough. And you've succeeded, you mm -hmm. know? That's what you need to set your level of success. I use this phrase all the time that I picked up a few years back. 
I had this boss, I was working at this company and we were doing what it was in a mock-up department. So in a graphic design company, when you're creating a bunch of products for different customers, you have this department where you create prototypes, create the fakes. So if you're designing uh, some custom folder for a business to use for their stationery or whatever, you create a custom fake of that folder, right? One of the things he used to say all the time is don't spend too much time on it. Just make it good enough for government work. And that became kind of my mantra about so many things. Oh, wow. So everyone, uh, thank you for uh, coming so far. He uh, exited his software right now. <laughs> okay, there we are. I don't know what I hit there. It's like it leaves when I hit the, oh, I think I actually done that. Okay, I'm back. Um, <laughs> I'm okay. doing my work, right? Mm -hmm. I know that there are going to be people who don't like it. I'll give you an example. So I mentioned Big Bang a couple of mm -hmm. times. Big Bang Comics was this anthology series at Image for a while. Gary Carlson is the grandfather of Big Bang, the father of Big Bang, whatever. He's the owner, creator. Uh, he works with a lot of people. Back in 20, so the, the Megaton comics that he launched in the 80s, uh, the Black and White series, had all these different characters. And Eric Larson ran with Savage Dragon. Um, Liefeld ran with his Youngblood stuff. There were a couple of those in there. Um, even Frank Fosco was able to publish some of his E3 and stuff again later on. But nobody had done anything with Megaton, the title character, since the 90s, since like 1994. So uh, back about 10 years ago, I pitched this idea to Gary because I had this idea for rebooting. I love Megaton. He's a great character. He's a former child star who becomes a superhero. Um, and uh, if you haven't, if you have no experience with him, he's, he's really interesting. And I had this idea for rebooting it because I'm like, he deals with fame. He deals with this. He deals with that. He, he's, such, he's so ripe for a reboot. And I pitched this idea to Gary, but this was 10 years ago. I didn't have the wherewithal. I didn't have the finances. I didn't have the means. I didn't know how I was going to do this. But to show Gary that I wasn't just going to rehash his stuff, I decided to write something original. I wrote mm -hmm. a little story prequel that explored one aspect of how this character became the hero that he was. And so I wrote this story and I started putting it together. I started illustrating it with the, with the 3D stuff. And then... Uh, I was slowly pulling it together and then Gary pulled me in on another project where I did some lettering and then uh, I got involved with other things. I did my children's books and I got in the life and stuff. I mean, raising three kids, you know, been busy. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, he decided to launch a new uh, anthology series at IndiePlanet.com called Big Bang Adventures. Each issue would be new stories. And the Big Bang stuff is mostly silver and golden age pastiche. It's mostly like homage to the kind of era. So most of these characters have this kind of feel to them. <coughs> and so he reached out to me. He said, hey, did you ever finish that story, that prequel? I was like, no, but I could finish up pretty quick. He's like, great, I'd like to publish it in this. And I was like, awesome. So I pulled it together and I finally got it finished and I sent it out to him and he published it in Big Bang Adventures number five. And uh, it was called The Megaton Kid. And so it was basically about when Megaton was like 12 years old and he had this mm -hmm. little adventure. And I was really proud of it. I thought it turned out really well. I got a great review from this guy who was reviewing a lot of Big Bang stuff. But it didn't really sell. And part of the reason it didn't really sell is because the 3D stuff wasn't a good fit for a series that was largely based on imitating guys like Jack Kirby, you know? <laughs> like it was retro kind of stuff. And here I am coming out with this very modern kind of looking stuff. <laughs> now, I went ahead. I got inspired by that. And I wrote two more stories that became a second issue. Uh, two more little prequels. So I have basically a prequel mm -hmm. 
you know, swords, which it delved into two other main characters. And the third story was probably my proudest piece of writing to date because I wrote a, a moment in that story that actually almost made me cry. Like it was such like when I when it was in, when the inspiration struck and I wrote it down, I was like, holy crap, that is yeah. good. That <laughs> is really that is emotional. That is that is beautiful. It was it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And so I put those two out and the second issue didn't really sell either, but all of those learns got me into this idea. Like I still have other ideas I want to do for big bang, but it's like the 3d stuff's just not fitting. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I need to do my own. I need to finally say, never mind everyone else's stuff. You know, it's, it's easy to play in someone else's sandbox. I need to build my own. So, <laughs> so fast forward to uh, a couple months later, I started working on this new story. That is uh, the story I'm currently working on right now, which is, it's called Red Cat Celebrity Status. And it is a four-issue miniseries okay. that introduces people to the idea of this brand new superhero universe. And lots of people do this and everything. And if it never goes far beyond this, I'm okay because I'll have done it. Uh, See, but I'd be excited to explore and expand upon this idea that I'm introducing with this story. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You were going to say? Oh, sorry. Uh, so... Because everyone's different, obviously. You're not trying to do this to replace your nine to five. You're doing this because you just genuinely want to have your story specifically out there. Just want to make sure you're correct about that, right? Right. And I mean, if it ends up replacing it at some point because it takes off, yay. I don't, (laughs) I'm not going into this needing it to become my nine to five, to become my full time thing. Um, because for one thing, that's going to have to pay me really well to make up for the yeah, yeah. Because right? the reason why I ask that to everyone <laughs> is people have this idea of like hitting it big and being the next right. big thing. But it's like, do people know that this kind of stuff, pop books don't really pay very well. People haven't seen how much stuff's been going on. This doesn't pay well. <laughs> I don't even think it's in like money pit of money here, but that's not how it yeah. works actually. <laughs> well, a lot of it is how much you put into it too. Also, people true. think mm-hmm. that they're going to put out one issue and they're going to make gobs of money, you know, like. I was originally thinking I was going to do the first two issues as a Kickstarter mm-hmm. and, and launch it that way. But I was told that it's easier, it's better to do like one and then a little while later do the next one, you know, mm-hmm. shorter, smaller ones back to back, more modest, you know, mm-hmm. uh, goals. Because if you don't make your full goal, you don't get paid. Um, but what's really neat is that with technology being where it's at now, there's so many of those things that you can do that you can produce without, with very little out of pocket, you know, like. When you produce a digital piece, so like people who invest in the Kickstarter that get the digital issue, there's almost no overhead on that. I've already put all the work. It's just my time that I'm getting paid for, basically. And it's only the print issues and the physical products that are going to have some cost. Uh-huh. So you always got to kind of balance that and figure that out. But the Red Cat miniseries introduces this character, Red Cat, and he's the main character of it. And... I don't obviously want to give everything away because I mean, you know, this thing's not even out yet, but it's coming out very soon. Um, but the idea is that he's kind of like, so, so some of my favorite characters growing up, um, Nightwing, big fan of Nightwing. I really got into Nightwing. During yeah, I love the, Dick. I love me some Dick. <laughs> he, he got, there was a, there was a, a new Nightwing series that was launched a while ago with Scott McDaniel, uh, where he moved to Bloodhaven. It was the first introduction of him moving out of, uh, Gotham and going to, yeah, Black. I remember right. that one. Yeah. So I got into that run for a while and I was a big fan of that run. I really liked the look. I really liked the style. I really liked the stories. Um, when I was younger, like I said, I was really into artists later on. I got more respect for writers and started following certain writers. Mm-hmm. So I followed J Michael Straczynski when he was doing his midnight nation run and things like that. 
Um, and he was doing some of the Spider-Man stuff with John Romita Jr. and stuff like that. Um, so this character, his primary connections, or his primary similarities would be to a character like Nightwing or a character mm-hmm. like maybe Daredevil a little bit. Um, I like those kind of agile, you know, street tough uh, crime fighter types um, where there's a little bit of that martial arts thing. So like your Shang-Chi or Shang-Chi uh, types, your um, not not so much, your, you know, like not the big ones like the uh, like I like the more agile characters. I, you know, not the not the Batmans where it's like, yeah, he's martial arts and everything, but he's buff and he's big. Like I like the leaner ones. Right. Um, the guys who kind of flip all over the place. That's why, Dick, again, Dick Grayson, you know, he's, he's such an acrobatic, you know, type of character. And so I came up with this character and he kind of develops. So he's been in development for a long time and he kind of develops from earlier, less interesting versions, less cool versions, you know? Uh, so eventually he kind of landed where he's at now. And so you start out in the story where you're introduced to this character. He's an aspiring actor by day uh, who's doing stunt work. And at night he goes out and patrols, right? And he's got this backstory that he kind of hints at about this arch rival, this character that supposedly killed his master, you know, very cheesy kind of stereotypical generic kind of backstory of like he's looking to for justice or revenge he hasn't made up his mind right and so he's got this notion that he's going to meet this character and you know usually a story like that you're like okay so this is going to take forever for him to meet this character he meets him in the very first issue but when he does he discovers that a lot of what he thought was true is not and that's where the story kicks off and so from there i'm going to kind of introduce this world that he's living in that he himself didn't know existed and thus create and also establish the big mystery of this world, of this version of a universe where there's a, there's this whole world of supers and heroes and villains that the public doesn't know about. And everybody just kind of accepts it and nobody really knows why. And so that's the, that's the, um, the gimmick the the uh the the twist on this story and so the first four issue miniseries kind of explores him trying to get to the truth and then from there um presents the possibility of more you know of more stories later on so how do you go about crafting your villains actually so the first villain was so <laughs> this character the 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 main villain uh the first villain he meets who isn't actually who who is his arch rival and everything he started out as a guy that I was like, I want to create a character. And this is back when I was still drawing stuff. I want to create a character that has as many swords and knives and blades I could possibly put on him. And then I'm going to call him Bloodblade. And <laughs> I changed the name and I've updated the character and everything. But <laughs> he is an interesting character because he actually has a connection to one of the big bads. But he himself isn't really a big bad. He's more of a, he's more of a, a neutral character. He's more of a... a, a um, uh, kind of like doing his own thing out for himself, he actually kind of quit working for the big bad um, and is doing his own thing now. And so he's got an interesting story. Uh, the big bad is, so this is something I learned a while ago. The best villains are the ones who think themselves the hero. All right. Wait, wait a minute. That's a twist. Okay. That's yes. usually pretty different. Okay. When you think about how the the, the the great heroes, here's an example, Lex Luthor, right? 
the biggest thing about Lex Luthor uh, is that he was the epitome of human potential. He mm -hmm. was brilliant. He was rich. He had all this potential to help people. And out of nowhere comes this guy who had just, and he worked very hard to become what he thought was going to be Earth's hero and then got overshadowed by a guy who just showed up and naturally could do it. So a big part yeah. of what drives him is that you stole my thunder. You stole my limelight. I should have been, you're not even from here. You didn't have to put all the work I did. All right. You're just some alien who showed up. Like he has this kind of like almost sympathetic quality to him. At least he does in more recent times. There was probably a time where he was just two dimensional villain. Right. But a lot of great villains, um, in, in the stories, will think themselves the good guy. The Emperor in Star Wars thought he was bringing order to the universe, right? Anakin Skywalker thought he was bringing the order to the universe, and that's how he fell to the dark side. <laughs> A lot of the great villains in the stories think they're in the right. They often have this sort of like, excuse me one sec here, I got it. Just ah, pardon. That's me. fine. Um, <laughs> they think this all of a sudden I had this cramp from sitting in a weird way or something. I don't know. Yeah, I get them too. Um, <laughs> I'm getting uh, anyway, think... it's getting old thing is getting stuck in. <laughs> <laughs> they think that they're the ones who are in the right. You know, like the world conquerors and the um and the ones who are like, you know, they have these grand schemes. I'm gonna do this, and this is Thanos, right? Thanos mm -hmm. thought himself the hero. He thought he was doing the universe a favor by killing half the people. He's like, even the comic books, he, he, he was doing right. it for love. Crazy. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm in love <laughs> with death, so I'm going to kill half the universe. Yeah, that's the um, thing. That's the important part of that story is like, you'll do anything for love. That's, oh, uh, right. God. So, right. Ages so well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, I, this is what happens when I stand all day. No problem. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, um, so when I set out to create the my version of what would essentially be Hydra um, mm. or Cobra or organizations like that, the hand, the foot, you know, clans and things like that, mm -hmm. I wanted to have them start out as something. Basically, so one of the interesting things about the twist with with the movies where Shield was Hydra, you know, where Hydra infiltrated Shield and everything, I basically created a villain group that was that started out as Shield and became Hydra. Um, they still think themselves in the right they still think that their cause is noble but their cause has become corrupted mm -hmm. over the decades as they formed and so they're a large part of the connection to the great mystery of what i'm writing and my story and everything um as this sort of like you know shield slash hydra type organization mm -hmm. but in that there's some interesting characters and so the two primary villains of my story are these two women each one with their own agenda and it's the clashing of those agendas that leads to the big climax of the story. Um, the fact that each one has their own idea, but neither one is the one in charge. And all other than hinting at the one in charge, there is no revelation of who the real person in charge is um, in this initial miniseries. But that's because, you know, I aspire to do more. So, you know. So throughout your entire careers, you do have a lot of jobs, even in from doing this. How do you go about actually getting better at your specific one so like let's start with pacing how do you get better at pacing your stories you've written a lot of stories actually yeah yeah so how do you go and over the years i've written pacing there is a certain thing about the challenge of writing to a to a specific number of pages um and there's some flexibility in there like one issue is 21 one issue is 22 one issue is 23 one mm -hmm. issue is 22 like you, you give yourself a little bit of flexibility that because you fill in with the stuff like pinups and things right 
Um, but with the, you know, you've got some, you've got some guardrails on your pacing. Uh Um, and so a lot of it is just, first you have to plan, you have to, you you know, think about your beats and everything. You come up with the idea of the story, Uh you come up with your beats and everything. And as long as you hit those beats, you kind of make it work. Um, and it just kind of flows naturally. So practice is a big part of it. Like you try, you do it, you try it and it either works or it doesn't. And you make changes, you know, always be ready to make changes. And then also find people you can trust who can give you their perspective because it's never good to create in a bubble or a vacuum. You know, you always want to have some people that you can bounce ideas off of. Uh, my best friend was that for me for many years and, and continues to be. And I've got some other people as well. I now have an accountability partner who uh, writes, she writes a lot, but different kinds of things than what I write. So each one of us has insights on just the writing process as a whole that we can share with each other. And then I have other people who give me their feedback on the art and things like that. Um, I think the cutting my teeth on, you know, some of the other projects that I've done helped me get to the, developing the techniques that I use now. Coming up with the idea of using the animation tools to create my panel by panel breakdowns in the in the 3D program so that I wouldn't have to like create a new file for each panel, uh, which would have been insane. And I don't have the money for that kind of storage. I already have like, I'm already running out of storage with this project. And, you know, <clears throat> I mean, these files get big. Um, but being able to do that, those kinds of things, those all came from techniques that I learned as I went through these other projects. So um, ultimately experience is the best teacher. Yes. And crafting characters, pacing. What about, uh, you do the lettering yourself, right? Yeah. The lettering is the never first like thing that I learned. You need to get an editor, right? Oh, well, there's definitely going to be an editor. I mean, I, so the first lettering that I did was through, um, was for Gary Carlson mm-hmm. for the, uh, for the couple of different things he did. Uh, one of the, the first big projects I did, I was originally going to be colors and letters, but I wasn't that good at coloring at the time. Mm-hmm. So they had me do the letters. They found someone else to do the coloring. And, um, <clears throat> I learned, Gary taught me some things as I was lettering that. Like, he's like, okay, so when you're lettering, you got to do this, or this is what you do here. You don't capitalize your eyes unless you're saying the word I, you know, little things like that. And and those kinds of things that he taught me, when I see them, even in big names like Marvel or DC, I see stuff like that. And I'm like, guys, come on. Um, There is a, uh, and I think I have one of those in one of my issues where I found it recently. I was like, oh man, I missed that one. Um, But, you know, I do have other people, like I do have editors, people who take a look at it. Like, even though I'm doing all the work, I have, I have an, I always put another set of eyes on it. So Gary edited some of my early stuff and gave me a lot of things. But part of it was, is like, I learned graphic design years ago. So I started in the mid nineties. I started learning how to use the computers, started learning how to use uh, Macintosh computers. Cause I'm like, people are coloring comic books and they're, they're digitally lettering comic books. And this is even before people were hand drawing and inking in the computers, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I was like, I need to learn this stuff. So I learned these skills and then I used those to have a career in the graphic design field for a while. Um, so I spent a long time doing design work and, and production work and things like that and work in different companies. And it was that background. Cause I was like, and I told my friends, when we were first aspiring to do the comics so many years ago. I was like, we need to go out and we need to build these skill sets so that even if we don't do the comics, we still have viable skill sets we can use to make money. Right. Right. So I got into uh, graphic design and then when Gary came along and asked me about lettering, I got into lettering and it was basically taking those illustrator skills I learned about typography and things like that and learning the principles of comic book lettering. And I started with lettering. Now, at that point, I'd already written some stuff, 
nothing that got published. Like I wrote, um, this character, this current story is like a, a, an, a, a, the latest version of stories about this character and other similar characters that I've been telling that I've been writing for years that never went anywhere. You know, right. I got, I got, I mean, I'm down here in my basement and many of these boxes are full of stuff that never got anywhere. Right. Old mm -hmm. artwork and, and old stories that I wrote and things like that. Probably have the in old the black and white concept art pages still in those boxes too, probably. <laughs> oh yeah. And some of that stuff's showing up in the comic. There'll be some like behind the scenes stuff where I talk about, okay, so this character originally started as this character 30 years ago. Um, one of the things that helped kind of develop my uh, writing techniques is uh, role-playing games. So um Back in the 90s, there was, uh, maybe it was the late 80s, early 90s, there was a, a, a role-playing game called GURPS. It was an acronym for Generic Universal Role-Playing System. It was created by Steve Jackson Games, and it was a very flexible system. It was designed to allow you to create whatever you wanted with game rules. So we started using that, and we took some of those early versions of those combo characters, and we ran them through game scenarios. And so we would we would crowd whoever was running the game would come up with some plot and the other character, the other players would take those comic book characters and they'd run them through the plot. And what I learned from those games that's become a big part of what I do is that when you're writing a story from scratch and with no previous experience or anything, you have a tendency to write very linearly. OK, my character is going to run on this hall and he's going to run as some stormtroopers and he's just going to shoot all the stormtroopers, right? That might be your initial thought process, your initial approach. But if you take that scenario, you set that scenario up and you hand it to the players and then the players go, uh, no, actually, if there's like a dozen stormtroopers, I'm going to run the other way. <laughs> you get sure. Han Solo, right? You get yeah. a character that's more complex. It's more interesting. Mm -hmm. When you introduce dice into that scenario, you now get chaos. So it's like, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to do this. My character, my hero is going to do this. I just failed miserably. Now what happens? That chaos factor created some of the most dynamic and fun uh, game sessions and thus inspired me to think about that when I write my stories. Mm -hmm. How can I bring a bit of chaos? Yes, he is the hero. Yes, I want him to succeed. But how do I make, won't it be funnier if he succeeds as much by luck as skill mm -hmm. you know how wouldn't it be fun if he goes into a scenario where it's like i've got to get this critical piece of evidence or this critical piece of intel and halfway through i lose it now what you know mm -hmm. um that's the kind of thing that has has kind of influenced my writing and that's part of where i kind of cut my creative chops if you will um all those years ago and that's where all these stories kind of started Fast forward to today when they're finally ready to see the light of day. So. Yes, sir. And before we head out, I want to ask you two more things. The first thing yeah. is, do you have any advice for anyone that is coming into the scene right now? Because you'd be more on the indie side of things. But you Have you ever did work for the major two, actually? Other than what was published at Image, so not even not even Marvel or DC. It was all like I had some stuff, like I had those lettering projects that I did that was published at Image. Um and then the stuff for Gary as indie scene, I've almost exclusively been in the indie scene. Um, okay. Some of the freelance gigs, like I've worked for some companies that did end up doing stuff, but it was more like on a graphics design side of things, not on a comic book okay. side of things. Um, but uh, I, uh, I think that there's still something viable because there's a lot of what I've learned over the years about 
how the industry works and everything mm -hmm. that, you know, is partially what influences my attitude about it and uh, influences what I expect out of it. Because like you said, it's easy to think that, you know, you're going to make a, a ton of money off of one thing. And that just is extremely, extremely rare. Um, right. But one nice thing about being a creator versus being a talent, uh, another type of talent, like there's always going to be a point where it's too late for certain things, but it's never too late for anything in that field. Like if mm -hmm. I was like, I, when I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be an actor. Right. And right. I did do <laughs> some theater when I was younger and stuff like that. But I, my, my biggest role to date was in a indie, um, a no budget indie film, uh, horror movie shot back in 2007, where I played, <laughs> uh, I played a, uh, a near victim of zombies. Like I was mostly on the crew and they, I did such good work that they let me have a bit part in it. Like, there's, you know, there's such a range in any industry, mm -hmm. but I think the biggest thing is realistic expectations and prepare yourself for wearing hats you don't expect to wear. You know, sometimes you've got to learn aspects of the business that you may hate, but they're part of what's necessary to do what you love. You know? mm -hmm. I don't like figuring out budgets. I don't like figuring out if how much money I have to make to to break even or succeed. <laughs> True. I don't like figuring out what tiers of rewards. Like I love thinking figuring out what kind of awards I want to give. I don't like figuring out the logistics of what to charge for those rewards. I don't like any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> I didn't like writing a business plan all those years ago when I tried to get investors. Years ago, when I was dumb and younger, <laughs> didn't know better. Yeah. Um, but I did a lot of that work, and I learned from it. And it still was useful information. So I always encourage people, you know, um, be prepared to learn things that you might not expect you need to learn if you want to be successful. Yes, sir. And any shout outs you want to give to anybody and anything else you want to say before we head out, actually? <sighs> shout outs. Um, well, I don't know if Gary Cross is going to see this, but him and Frank Fosco are the reason I'm even where I'm at now and even have the accomplishments I have now. So I got to appreciate them. And, uh, uh, Jamie Bauer is going to be, um, he's a, co he's technically a co-founder. He's just, uh, not involved right now, but he will be, uh, in the future. Um, and I, you know, he and, and some of the others that were part of that gaming group and those gaming groups over the years that helped me develop these characters, um, uh, Martin and Norman and John and uh, and Dan. These were all people that helped me develop these ideas over the years. And Pamela, uh, who's my current accountability partner, and uh, some of the others. I'm sure I'm going to miss people, but um, all these people definitely had an impact and an influence on on me getting to where I am and and finding these resources. Uh, and I'm uh, excited to kind of show off what I'm doing to um, to the world and see who likes it, you know. So, yeah. And uh, VagamondCreative.com. <laughs> yes, that's and the website. I can't wait to see so. you, uh, you know, grow with your new creative endeavor. Because I, I I do like what you had said earlier before, which I do agree with. Is it's something that I did myself. Was I was all into someone else's communities and doing all the stuff that they would do. But I was like, you know what? I I should also have my own. My own thing. I, I just, oh, it's like, a, like a manly thing. I don't know. It's instinct. We don't have our own thing. You don't have our own little castle. You know. Right. At some point, you have to you have to do a little bit of something that it is all yours, because succeed or fail, you have no one to blame but yourself. That's true. <laughs> and yeah. and but you can own it. So if you mm -hmm. succeed, you have that ownership. And mm -hmm. ultimately, 
when you think about creative control, you don't get creative control by working with the big two. Mm -hmm. you know? And if you really want to put something out there that is yours, you obviously want other people's input, but at some point you do have to accept it and recognize that it's limited. Ultimately, it's your vision. It's your dream. It's your idea. And put it out there. You never know. And also, for anyone that is watching this, this is what the uh, podcast episodes will look like if you want to come on here and promote your book. And the last thing I want to do, right before we go, because I haven't got a chance to do it yet, because uh, so many people have been messaging me about a lot of stuff, and, you know, just huh, busy as hell. But I want to make sure I show you guys on screen uh, Mr. Vagabond's uh, website, actually, right here, Vagabond Creative Entertainment. This is where you're going to go and check it out. Let me share the screen really quickly and hit share screen right here. There it is. This is, your, it is. This is yours, right? Yep. Joining the journey is where you can sign up for my mailing list. Uh, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. putting out a weekly newsletter as I'm gearing up for that Kickstarter. So you'll see, uh, get some insights into the, um, into what's going on, a couple of previews. And uh, there's actually a six-page preview on the website under Red Cat Celebrity Status. If you want to know more about my children book, children's book, you can click on Far For Haven series. It'll take you to links for that. And then if you click on Megaton, you can see the projects that I worked on for Big Bang. And, uh, and if you want to sign up for the newsletter, that'd be awesome. I'm hoping to launch within the next month. So uh, mm -hmm. that's what I'm gearing towards, getting close. So. Yeah, man. Wishing you nothing but success when you launch your Kickstarter. Appreciate that. And anyone else in the indie scene as well. Also, Cat was here the whole time, just just doing doing their thing, <laughs> just coming up and down, just sitting everywhere. God, cats are just they'll look at you like you're stupid as you feed them. God, they're so funny. right. They're right. such little shits. Well, yeah. See you guys later. But at least.